Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs Want to Tell You Something. So this week, I found a lecture from Jenny Randall's in 1989. I thought it was important to get this one out there. This is alien abductions from a UK perspective. So, the next episode I want to do for you guys is the aerial school case, because I talk about it a lot. And it's just a fascinating case in general. We're also going to touch on the Unusual Personal Experiences Survey. I recently acquired it. It's a little pricey, but I got my hands on one. So look forward to that episode, because it's coming up next. So after the lecture from Jenny Randall, I'll put some of my input in there. It's not going to be a whole lot, but I'll make it brief. Alright guys, let's get it. Abductions, of course, are the thing which uh, is very much the in-vogue subject. And I suppose, to some extent, there's a kind of feeling of deja vu or, oh no, not again. Um, and I sympathise with that if that's the way you're feeling about this whole subject. However, I hope that to some extent, and certainly for most of you, um, the way that we're going to look at the abduction experience over the next... Um, minutes will be a different approach not necessarily a radical approach um, and from where i come from in britain it's a fairly common approach it's the sort of way that we tend to interpret it i think it's a kind of cultural difference and the way in which we evaluate ufos from nation to nation does differ and i don't think there's anything wrong with that um, we can learn from one another we should be prepared to do that nobody has um, a monopoly on truth. Nobody can say that they know what the answer is. Um, and even though the title of the book says um, UFO abductions, alien abductions, the mystery solved, um, perhaps there should be a question mark in that title. Um, but certainly, uh, I, I don't want to make any pretentious claims that that is what we have done. We're making some progress towards an answer. And I think that, that is really as far as we will find that we've gone. Um, we'll, we'll look at this in a visual sense. I think that's the best way to do it rather than me just walk along because I have a tendency to do that. I don't know how well you can actually see these uh, slides because I can't see them very well at all from here. That's probably because of the lights. But um, if you want any more lights down, that's fine by me. Okay? Fine. Right, now this is, um, as you probably recognize, a scene from Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it's the way in which we would typically associate the abduction experience in a kind of fictional, mythical way. It's nice, friendly, what I like to call intergalactic cavalry riding in to the rescue of mankind. And it's the sort of um, scenario that we often associate with the abduction experience. However, next slide please. This in fact is how the media handled the abduction experience totally differently. They perceive it as a, a subject which they can sensationalize. They want to scare people. Um, and in effect, they've taken the same phenomenon, the same set of experiences, and turned it on its head. So they talk about terror, use words like that to describe it. Now, in a sense, that, that is based on the truth, because that is what witnesses do tend to describe. They say that the experiences which happen to them are frightening. They say that they are traumatic. Um, yet, at the same time, there's a kind of element of, of awe and an aura of mystique about them as well. And this immediately brings, to, brings us to the heart of the whole phenomenon because it, it shows that there's a kind of a split. Half of the evidence goes in one direction, half of the evidence goes in another. Is it an awe-inspiring experience or is it a terrorizing experience? Now, of course, you all recognize uh, this photograph, and um, I have to be very careful what I say about situations like this, the, the um, photograph of our old friend George Adamski, who is there really to represent the contactee movement from the 1950s, and to pose the question, is there a difference between what was going on 30 years ago and what is happening now? Are abduction experiences 
something which has been concurrent throughout the UFO phenomenon since it first entered its modern phase in 1947? Or is it something which has changed dramatically, a new thing which has only begun over the past 20 or 30 years? And, and the key to that question lies in these cases, these, these contactee reports, which happened um, to a very large extent in that period of that, the early 1950s to the late 1950s. Um, there are similarities, there's no doubt. Anybody who has seen some of uh, the modern day abductees, particularly the ones who approach it with a kind of evangelical zeal, uh, will realize that however sincere they may be, they are, to a very large extent, modern-day contactees because they believe that the experience that they've had has imparted into them a message, a message which they then have to get across to other people. And that, in effect, is what the contactee philosophy is all about. However, there are also differences because in the contactee stories such as George Adamski's, generally speaking, the interaction between the witness and the phenomenon was voluntary. That is, it wasn't an enforced experience. And modern day abductions are typified by the fact that they are, in effect, kidnapped. Um, the entities take the witness by force. So there is a crucial difference, as well as, to some extent, similarities. Again, you see, we recognize that this isn't really a straightforward, simple problem. And it's very easy to, to sort of put ourselves into a, a polarized state of mind whereby we interpret the evidence in the way that we want to interpret it. So we must, be, we must try and guard against that. It's always tempting to do it because we all have our own ideas about what is going on. And we may be no more right than anybody else. Um, inevitably, therefore, we're going to color our thinking to some extent and accept certain evidence and reject other evidence. And we have to do our best to avoid that tendency. In Britain, the, um, this philosophy of contactism during the 1950s took its most visible form through this society, the Ethereum Society, which is still very active today and I think reflects um, the sort of only aspect of, of contactism which still flourishes over there. Um, and in fact, it's still seen to a very large extent as representative of the UFO movement in Britain. Um, they are often quoted in the media. Uh, they are treated as a UFO research group and um, they are perceived as ufologists. Uh, ufologists don't perceive them as ufologists, I would, I would hasten to add. And there's a kind of uneasy truce which exists between the two sides. Um, the difference is that, of course, the Ethereum Society don't investigate UFO sightings. And I mean, I, I know this because I've, I've done radio programs with them and television programs and I've, I've tried to talk basic philosophy with them. And they admit that effectively they are a channel in the same way as many people here today are, are reporting channeling experiences of their own. And therefore they don't actually need to investigate individual reports. Uh, they are effectively there to spread a message and are more akin to a religious movement than they are to a UFO research society, which is a, an interpretation of the, of the phenomenon. Not necessarily any better or any worse than the philosophy of an investigator or an investigative group, which I freely admit at this point that is basically what I am. I am not an abductee, I'm not a contactee, I'm not a channel or anything like that. I am effectively an investigator. Uh, I, I, I was trained as a science, science teacher. I investigate UFO reports and abduction experiences from the point of view that witness says this is what happened to me. I therefore have to evaluate that experience, document it, see how much of it can be verified, and then look for patterns and parallels between them. There, there, there's our old friend George. Uh, yeah, he, he lives out, um, out here on, in, on the west coast in California and has done for a few years. And the, um, the British branch of the Ethereum Society, uh, which is still its sort of heart, um, is now organized by a, a youthful team of very vigorous and very um, uh, dedicated people who, who certainly um, know their ufology. And we also have peculiar sidelights to this whole contactee stroke abduction scenario in Britain. 
and this is one of them. This is, um, in, in Britain we have a sort of annual ritual, which I think is a bit like your Miss America beauty pageant that was on this week, and, and, and we call it the Eurovision Song Contest. Now the idea of this is that uh, every nation in Europe, and I, I literally mean every nation, is supposed to have a, a competition on its television channel to elect a song to represent the country. And then on one dreadful night of the year, they actually parade all of these songs. Now, they are not actually proper songs. I mean, no self-respecting songwriter would go anywhere near this contest. So, you know, um, it's, it's, um, it's one of these worst talent shows on earth competitions whereby everybody who thinks they can write a great song tries to write one and enters it. And this enormous competition goes on forever and ultimately it's all whittled down and you have to sit through about five hours of this dirge being endlessly beaten out. And occasionally it throws up nice songs and occasionally uh, the, the performers do become international celebrities. The, uh, the pop group ABBA actually started in this way and um, their first hit record was the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest, but nine times out of ten it is instantly forgettable. Um, however, a, a couple of years ago, this chap, whose name was Ricky Peebles, entered the competition and won the British heat and became Britain's entry for this Eurovision Song Contest. But there was a twist to this because he said that the, the song that he was singing, which was entitled Only the Light, was a straight translation of his own close encounter. And the words had actually been given to him by the aliens with which he was an actual child. And they had promised him faithfully that he was going to win the competition for Britain. Um, the one thing this did teach us about the um, whole UFO phenomenon is that um, whatever else aliens may be, they're rotten songwriters because <laughs> Britain came 13th out of 17 entries that year, which is the worst performance we've had for about the last decade. So I don't think we're going to be using any channelers in the near future. <laughs> To take more seriously, this of course is, as Antonio was saying before, the key case in the whole abduction experience, Betty and Barney Hill. The reason why it's significant is not because it was the first abduction. As Antonio said, chronologically it wasn't. And even, to some extent, the Antonio Villas-Boas case wasn't the first abduction because we have experiences dating back now quite a few years prior to Antonio Villas-Boas, which presumably what happened, even though they were usually reported later. Also, experiences which were reported at the time prior to Antonio Villas-Boas, which probably could have been abductions and simply didn't become full-blown abductions because the methodology yeah. to uncover them wasn't used at the time. And also, you've got all this problem of how should you interpret and evaluate uh, ancient texts, mythological stories from a few centuries ago, even biblical texts if you want to. I did a, a radio program with a radio station in San Diego a few days ago and it was quite interesting because um, uh, I was saying the sort of things that I'm saying now that the presenter was, was intent on trying to persuade me but what I really meant by this was that the, the Bible was the very first autobiography by an abductee. Um, I, I certainly never thought of it in those terms before and I'm still not sure exactly what he meant. But, um, yes, you can do that. You can look back at old stories and interpret them in terms of abductions if you want to. But there is a, a danger of doing that because the further back in time you go, the less we know about the sort of mindset of the people responsible for the text. And it's always dangerous to read into a situation things which probably weren't there in the first place and put onto it a stamp that's associated with our own um, co common and current culture. So. The reason why the Betty and Barney Hill case, which happened in September 1961, was important is because it was the case which manufactured the abduction phenomenon so far as society was concerned. Effectively, they were driving along a road. They saw something in the sky. This is uh, Barney's sketch of what it was. And um, it was only later when they got back that they realized that there were stranger aspects to the story. 
and those stranger aspects emerged out of a kind of symbiosis. They didn't all emerge spontaneously. They came because the investigators said, ah, now wait a minute, how long did this journey take? And gradually they realized that there was apparently a time lapse because the journey home had taken longer than it should have done. There were mysterious physical marks and uh, damage to the car, things like that. And a, a kind of prototype of what an abduction experience should be like was created, either spontaneously because that's how the phenomenon was suddenly happening, or it was produced by investigators looking at the phenomenon in a different way. We don't know, and we've got to realize that we don't know and understand that questions like this, what impact investigators have on abduction experiences do have to be asked. And I think we, we tend not to look at it from that point of view. We tend to assume that we are uh, objective things like robots who are just pulling apart an experience of a human being and we have laid bare the essence of the abduction experience. But that isn't what happens because we are human beings interacting with another human being who has had a bizarre experience. And the ultimate experience that is described and enters into the literature of our field is a combination of those two people, usually meeting over a long period of time, sometimes working with doctors and psychiatrists and so on too, and inevitably, out of all that morass, um, the final story that emerges has got to have had some impact from the other people involved rather than the witness themselves. So we mustn't forget that point. Here's um, the alien that um, Betty and Barney Hill saw. Uh, I do wish that we had um, lovely photographs like that of, of all our abduction cases. Of course, that isn't really a photograph. It's a still from the, the TV movie of the case that was made. And the fact that there was a TV movie made illustrates the impact the case had because it was turned into a best-selling book by John Fuller called The Interrupted Journey. It was serialized in newspapers all over the world. And by about the mid-1960s, everybody knew abductions were here. And everybody, certainly within Western culture, was to some extent associated with the phenomenon and had an inkling in their subconscious mind of what it was all about. So it, it formed a kind of watershed. Um, after this case became publicized, it was no longer possible to talk about witnesses being ignorant of abductions. Of course, there were some and there were people in remote cultures who had no association with this, but to a very large extent that wasn't true. And that's happened again more recently, in 1987, with the impact of Communion and Whitney Strieber, and then subsequently Bud Hopkins' success with his books. So we've had a, another boost, and that's of course the reason why the abduction phenomenon has taken off over the last couple of years. That's a bit of a pun, isn't it, the abduction phenomenon has taken off? I never saw it. Anyway. What we are therefore dealing with, as you can see immediately, are problems also of sociology. Another monster has reared, reared its head, which we hadn't given much thought to before. You know, we're dealing with this nice objective phenomenon which we can pull to pieces and find easy answers to. But we're finding that there are things intruding into our, our nice little pile of questions which we don't want and which we don't know how to deal with. So how does the abduction experience differ where I come from uh, in Britain? This is in fact um, the witness to the first abduction experience that um, was actually investigated, reported and publicized in Britain. Uh, it's a chap by the name of John Day. And um, he was traveling with his family, wife, three children, uh, home from a trip out to some family friends and uh, relatives uh, a few miles outside of London in October of 1974 when they were uh, in a bit of a hurry because they wanted to get back to watch a television program at a certain time and they encountered that on the road ahead of them. They'd seen a funny blue light in the sky but they hadn't paid much attention to it because it just sort of went by and fizzled out. But then, as they rounded a bend, they went into this strange bank of green mist which appeared out of nowhere. Uh, they couldn't stop themselves riding into it because they were too close. And as they went in, the car radio, which was switched on, suddenly started to crackle and sparkle. And um, John, who was driving, instinctively pulled out all the wiring to cut it off and stop an electrical fire. 
there was a kind of form because they came out the other side of the mist. And, and that's it. They, they drove on home. And all would have been well until they turned on the television set and realised that not only had they missed the television programme, but the television channel had gone off air for the night. And um, they'd apparently lost a couple of hours of time. Now, that was the situation as it, st as it stood for quite a long period. And it may have stayed that way permanently. They had no inkling that they had an abduction experience, they said. During the space of the next couple of years, they did start to have strange dreams, not just the adults, but the children too, seeing peculiar images, normally of a very horrible face, looking a bit like a, a bat, with large, prominent ears and furry features and so on. And um, they also changed their lifestyle dramatically. They all stopped eating meat. They became very ecologically conscious and um, there were significant changes of that order. But again, they didn't associate these with the experience. And it was only when um, a UFO investigator happened to stumble upon the case and thought these things might be important, started to put two and two together and make 22, and then realized that here we have an embryonic abduction. And the first step in any self-respecting investigator's investigation of an embryonic abduction is to cart the witnesses off to the nearest psychiatrist, not to prove them sane or insane, but to magically hypnotize them and bring out the memory of the missing period of time. Of course, that is possible. But what is also possible is that hypnosis can stimulate fantasy. Most people who carry out hypnotic research are not sure how information that emerges can be distinguished between fact and fantasy, fiction, imagination, and all the different strands in between. So you're immediately adding yet another problem to the database that you're creating by employing hypnosis. Anyhow, we have the conscious testimony here, we had the subconscious testimony of their dreams, and now we have added to that the, the testimony emerging out of hypnosis which was a standard abduction scenario of the car was stopped inside the list. They were beamed on board in a, in a different sort of way. It was very, it was very psychic, this experience. There was a, a lot of um, astral projection uh, elements to it. Inside the UFO, for example, the witnesses saw themselves. They were standing on a kind of railing, and they could see the car and their own bodies down below, as if they'd sort of been separated into a sort of astral self and a physical self. And that kind of element, it occurred recurrently throughout the whole case. Um, when they were actually beamed into the UFO, they did so in a, in a very out-of-body way, that the whole experience had very heavy hallmarks of an out-of-body experience. And um, also, when you looked at the track record of the family, you saw very quickly that they had a, a vivid history of psychic experiences. These were, these were not your ordinary citizen. These were people who lived in a kind of psychic world. So the first British abduction case could be looked at in two different ways, dependent upon how you wanted to interpret the evidence. If you wanted to take the UFO party line, um, a la mode for Hopkins, what you would say is, forget all that psychic junk, it's obviously irrelevant. What happened here was that these aliens picked up these people, stuck them inside the UFO, and they performed their genetic experiments on them. And they gave them the usual spiel. Uh, they were told that um, we had been genetically engineered by them, that they basically regarded us as their uh, pets, and that they were going to look after us, and um, we were a kind of long-term experiment. And then they showed them films, as is quite common in these experiences, of their home planet, which was in a bad way, and they wanted to try and help the world avoid going through the same situation, explaining, of course, why the witnesses ended up with this ecologically conscious lifestyle afterwards. On the other hand, if you want to be a sort of avant-garde ufologist, then you say, ah, yes, but hang on, what about all these factors of psychic experience, the fact that these witnesses are effectively psychics? who have had an abduction, does that mean that the abduction is just a sort of super psychic experience? Is there a continuum there? Is it relevant? And uh, apart from the funny looks you get from the mainstream ufologists for thinking thoughts like that, uh, you, you end up going in a completely different tangent, and you don't know who is right and who is wrong. And 
whatever else is true or not true, the thing that you saw that night on the road in front of his car was as real as anything you've ever encountered. You will never shake his conviction that this experience didn't happen. The next memory, after he actually sketched this thing onto a, a, a pad that he had by the side of him to record details of the traffic accident, was that there was a sudden jerk in reality, a kind of jump that happens, and he was now further down the road than he should have been, looking back puzzled because the sky was now dark and the thing had gone. And we're not sure that there was an actual time lapse in this case. It's one of the many cases whereby there's good grounds to believe that the time lapse was an artifact constructed by the investigators. That's a pretty heretical statement, I know, but I have seen it happen on a number of occasions where I'm quite convinced that there was no time lapse and that the investigators, by careful manipulation of the evidence, subconsciously, without doing it deliberately, produced the time lapse by convincing the witness that they actually ended the experience later than they thought they had. And this was an instance where that was probably true. There was a, apparent a 10 or 15 minute time lapse ultimately agreed upon, but it was very doubtful. There was certainly a space lapse in the sense that the witness ended up somewhere where he shouldn't have been and further down the road, but that's not quite the same thing. Anyway, um, to put a very long story short, the usual hypnosis occurred and he came out with the typical memory of being inside the UFO on a table or a bed, examined by these robotic figures supervised by uh, a fairly human-looking figure wearing a long, flowing white globe, a uh, robe, and a, a school cap. And um, the figure in this case also had a very biblical name, he called himself Joseph, um, which is interesting because the doctor and both of the people in the room who were investigating the case were Jewish. Uh, and it was seen to be uh, a peculiar coincidence that Jewish symbology emerged from this case. The witness himself wasn't Jewish, I, I hate to add. Um, the case is a very interesting and complicated one, and there are many other elements which are relevant, like, for instance, the fact that the witness, when you carefully questioned him, admitted that there were several previous occasions in his life when he had jumps in memory of the same kind. Now, that would have been an immediate signal for Bud Hopkins and investigators of that kind of way of approaching the subject to put the witness under, in, under hypnosis for all of those periods of time and see what you could come up with. And I would predict that if that had happened, you would have come up with previous abduction memory. However, in this case, that wasn't done. Uh, and instead, the witness was studied by medical doctors and they were asked, can you come up with any kind of medical scenario which could account for this? And two of them were totally convinced from the tests that they did, although they never actually satisfied the witness to this effect, and they were never able to conclusively prove it to anybody else either. But they, they were satisfied that he was a narcoleptic, which is basically someone who, because of peculiarities in their brain, falls asleep for a very brief period of time, wakes up again, doesn't realize that they've done that. It's a kind of, it's similar in many respects to epilepsy, a sort of transient loss of consciousness. And we began to see possible ways ahead for the subject by thinking about, ah, now are these spatial jumps potentially explainable as some kind of actual medical cause? Is there some process going on in the brain which is causing a loss of consciousness, which is manifesting as a time lapse if you evaluate the evidence in a certain way? It also, interestingly, although the witness came out with this onboard scenario, which is very similar in many respects to the, the abduction phenomenon as it manifests all over the place, he also was never himself totally convinced of the physical reality of that memory. He constantly said things like, I know I saw that object on the road, but the memory that I came out with under hypnosis was different. It had a kind of dreamlike quality. It was visionary in its appearance. And it's distinctly possible, he freely admitted, that although prior to the actual that experience itself, he had never had any interest in knowledge of or had read any books about UFOs, in the gap between the experience happening and the abduction hypnosis occurring, which was only a few months, but it was sufficient, he obviously absorbed information about the subject because he became personally intrigued by what had happened to him. And he says that it's distinctly possible that the memory of the hypnosis was a kind of 
through this fantasy which his mind generated to, to plug the gap. Now, I, I, I think that that's interesting to hear one of the best known abductees in the world coming out with a statement like that. In fact, uh, this particular case features in Dr. Eddie Ballard's catalogue of cases. He's a, uh, an American folklore researcher, PhD, who's produced what is probably the most monumental research into abduction cases ever produced anywhere. And he comes up with a list of um, the top 50 abductions based on the amount of data available and the, the complexity and importance of the case. And, and this is um, one of only about two or three British cases which featured in that, in that top 50 listing. So it is widely regarded as a significant case. on the hit list 
and therefore decided to make a bolt for it. But in the process of running away, they felt a, a strange force pulling at them, and it was apparently targeted on their nether regions. They also had physical effects associated with them, the usual thing, redding of the eyes, pounding head. Again, clear symptoms that some kind of energy force was involved. However, you also get cases like this. This is a, a guy who was out um, in a farming community in Cumbria. In fact, uh, just a few days uh, before the police officer sighting that we talked about before, um, and um, he said that these two aliens arrived, having gone out of a UFO, and apparently misinterpreted the gesture that he performed by bringing up his hand lantern, presumably an attack, and uh, they immediately struck him down with their ray guns. Uh, and I'm quite surprised we still have ray guns in modern day abductions, but apparently we do. And that is the result of the ray gun attack on his hand lantern. We, uh, we took this to um, a number of um, physical scientists and electronical engineers to ascertain what kind of extraterrestrial force had caused that damage. And uh, we got a, a remarkable conclusion out of this. The extraterrestrial force was apparently a bull lamp. Now, um, I, I, I don't know what, uh, sorry, ah, right, I, 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 I immediately sensed uh, that you didn't know what a blow lamp is. Now, I'm constantly aware that I'm using terms sometimes which might be British terms. Uh, what that is, uh, and you can maybe tell me what the American term for it is, it's, um, it's something that um, maybe yeah. painters and decorators would use to strip paint off the wall, and it's a blowtorch, fine, thank you, okay, yeah, <laughs> a blowtorch, and, um, of course, you could never prove that that damage was actually caused by a blowtorch. All you could say is that the mechanical deformation of the metal showed the same kind of results that would emerge from that. So it's possible, of course, that an alien weapon would produce the same kind of effect. But the point is, physical evidence, such as it is, which could provide hard evidence of something truly alien, didn't come up with the goods at all. It came up with something which was utterly terrestrial. So, if we can't get evidence from that field, what about evidence from photographs of, of aliens themselves? I mean, that would obviously offer conclusive proof if we had it. So we have a few cases of photographs like this one, although uh, I think most serious researchers, certainly when I've talked to, believe that that is um, a tabletop model. Uh, I take my life into my hands, I know about making statements like that, but that, that seems to be a generally accepted conclusion. Or we have cases like this, which is a famous British photograph. And you can see the sort of alien sticking out of the top of the young girl's head. But the photographer didn't see it when he took this photograph, he was just taking a picture of his daughter. Um, there it is in colour, and you can see a kind of space-booted figure emerges. What's interesting about the case is that the camera was pointed more or less straight in the direction of a nuclear reactor. And um, in actual fact, if, if we're not even talking about UFOs, and there's no reason to do so because there was no UFO involved in the case, you would probably say that that's somehow some sort of representation of one of the workers at the nuclear plant, which has gone into the photograph somehow or other. Uh, I've shown this photograph to um, leading um, photographic um, uh, bodies in Britain when I've given lectures to places like Kodak, and they have not been able to account for it. Uh, it has been studied by them in terms of looking for things like double reflections and uh, um, multiple exposures and things like that, but they can't find an answer. So we don't know what caused the picture, it's as simple as that, but unfortunately with evidence of an alien, it, it doesn't really count for much. As was this case, uh, which is an American one, which I, I think um, was ultimately admitted to be a hoax by the young lad who took it. If I remember rightly from John Keel's report on it, um, the UFO in the background was a, um, a hard-boiled egg, which um, just shows you what you can do with a little ingenuity, doesn't it? Well, um, this is a little taster for your, those of you who will be going to Miami, Miami Beach, is it next, uh, next May, to see Mr. Ed. Uh, this is one of Mr. Ed's photographs. Um, there are many others. And the reason why I'm showing it is because, in a sense, after you've just seen those photographs of aliens, typically reflective of what we have so far, 
for some sign that the phenomenon is going through an alteration, a kind of post-Streber era, and has escalated one notch up, and is now behaving differently, and is offering extra physical evidence. If this Mr. Ed case is genuine, and I still remain fairly agnostic on this one because I've got a lot of question marks about the case which haven't been satisfactorily answered. On the other hand, I am also well aware that an extensive amount of photographic analysis work has gone on and hasn't proved the case a hoax, so it's still, it's still in the melting pot. And if it's genuine, then it's extraordinary because it represents an effective total change in the phenomenon. We have a guy here who has seen UFOs repeatedly over a short period of time, who has seen entities repeatedly over a short period of time. And certainly he hasn't photographed any of the entities, only the UFOs. Um, but even so, it, it seems to be a sort of new daring move by the phenomenon. As does this case. Now, this happened exactly contemporaneously with the Mr. Ed case uh, in Britain. And this was taken by a, 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 a former police officer who was walking over a, a fairly desolate moorland area in Britain called Ilkley Moor in Yorkshire. Uh, when he encountered that strange figure coming down the little ravine there. And managed to get one photograph of him and he gestured to him. Apparently gestured to him to go away rather than come to him. And then ran around, but this in fact here, of rock. Um, and he went round the back of that and disappeared. He chased it and arrived at the back just in time to see this um, typical UFO shooting off straight up into the sky. Unfortunately, he didn't have the composure to photograph that, so all we have is the photograph of the entity. So, uh, sort of closer up shot moment when I can focus this any better. No. I can't focus it from here. I don't think it will focus up. It seems fairly fuzzy. It's 400 ASA rated film, so it's pretty grainy. But as you can see, it's um, your archetypal alien green figure. Now, um, as you imagine, an enormous amount of work has gone on into this case. Um, I, I would say probably more analysis of this case has occurred than any other case in recent British UFO history. Um, three separate photographic teams have analysed it. The, the ultimate conclusion is that wherever it is, it's actually there. From comparative photographs of the site, you can tell that the figure is approximately four foot six inches tall. Which, of course, doesn't mean that it's a four foot six inches tall green alien. It could be a four foot six inches tall person wearing a green suit. Um, and you, you're always faced with that dilemma. I mean, you do have what looks to be a very impressive case here. It is associated with an abduction because uh, the police officer, when he got down to civilization, discovered that the clock showed time was later than it should have been. Uh, he was put under hypnosis and he came up with a standard abduction scenario, going inside, giving the medical examination, showing the films of alien civilization, told secret information, which he ultimately be triggered into remembering and so on and so forth. But we still have problems because we don't have definitive proof. But we do, as with the Mr. Ed case, have a one step up escalation. That's, this is where I go into the clogs. Unfortunately, um, uh, a copy of uh, Tim's version didn't arrive more than a couple of days before I left, so I didn't have time to film that. But that's the staid conservative British presentation of the same book, in the same text inside, um, that is on sale here. And what I've tried to do with this is, as I said earlier, um, try and think around all these questions that we've faced and also look for comparisons between the, the data that we've got. We now do have a lot of abduction cases on record, extensively documented, so we can begin to look for trends and try and find answers to some of these questions. Now, in a, in a normal UFO situation where someone just sees something strange in the sky, we can usually evaluate it very simply. Some of them turn out to be hoaxes, very, very few, in fact, less than 1%. They, the witness, invents the story based on information they have from books, television programs, and so on. A lot of them, the vast majority of them, 90% plus, turn out to be what we call IFOs, identified flying objects, misperceptions of various mundane things that are up there in the sky all the time. And some of them um, come under this peculiarity of a term down at the bottom there, UAP, 
which rules to describe unidentified atmospheric phenomena. Now, we, we deliberately invented that term because to most people, the idea of a UFO is effectively synonymous with alien spaceships. And of course, that's a presumption because the interpretation of UFOs as spaceships is a theory to account for the data. It isn't a fact of life or a fact of the universe or whatever. It's, it's a theory and we must never forget that. So we use this terminology UAP because it's very clear from a lot of these straightforward UFO sightings, and I'm talking about non-abductions now, there is no need to presume an extraterrestrial origin. They are clearly phenomena on the fringes of science. It's very naive to assume that in 1989 we understand everything about the universe. Of course we don't. There are things which will be tomorrow's science. And I am myself totally convinced, as are the majority of the UFO researchers in Europe, that a lot of the unexplained UFO sightings will ultimately be reducible to phenomena like this. Natural physical energies which don't have any kind of necessity for an intelligence behind them. And they represent one, two, three, four, many different kinds of phenomena which will ultimately understand the, the physics behind. Now, that doesn't mean to say that that accounts for the whole UFO subject, because the UFO subject is a kind of combination of many different things all rolled into one. And, and asking a question like, what is the explanation to the UFO phenomenon? is a bit like asking the question, how do you account for the weather? You can't account for the weather in a simple way, because the weather's a combination of different things, like rain and clouds and winds and so on, and all of them have different physical causes. And I think that's what we've got with the UFO phenomenon. Lots of different phenomena all rolled into one, with potentially different explanations. And therefore, we now have to face the possibility that the abduction experience could be an entirely different thing. It might be totally separate from these simple UFOs. Certainly we can't evaluate it as easily as that. But we can do certain things with the data. There are two little pie diagrams up there on the left-hand side. Basically shows you the number of, um, the percentage of reports in a typical uh, group of UFO sightings which, which divide into different categories. The biggest block on the top left-hand side, we're talking about the green circle now, is some um, low-definition lights in the sky type things, the sort of things that we were evaluating in that picture on the last slide, and which potentially could be these UAP. The bottom green bit um, are what we might call, maybe um, Alan Hynek's close encounters of the first kind, but we in Britain tend to call medium-definition cases, because they're not just lights, there's some sort of structure to them. The witness sees an object, but the thing doesn't do anything else, it's just a basic sighting of an object. And as you can see, those two things together uh, knock out a pretty hefty percentage of the whole thing, 87% in fact. And various types of close encounter form the other wedges of the cave there. And the abduction experience is that very tiny bit from which the arrow is coming, just 1%. So abductions are a very small fraction of the total UFO phenomenon. We've got to remember that. And you can, you can break down these abduction experiences into all kinds of data, which I won't go into now because uh, you know, we, we don't have time. But um, we can learn things from them. And one of the most important things we learn from this kind of um, statistical work on abductions is that they are effectively a subjective experience. Although there are some cases of multiple witnesses involved in abductions, the vast majority of abductions tend to be single witness events, much more so than UFO sightings. The average number of witnesses per case, which you can get by dividing up the total number of uh, witnesses and the total number of cases, turns out for the UFO sightings to be around about 2.6 witnesses per case. Now, abduction, it comes down to somewhere in the region of 1.2 very close to one, which would of course be just one witness per case, total subjectivity, i.e. nobody but the witness experienced the phenomenon, which poses all kinds of immediate questions, like how real is the subject? Because if there's no hard evidence from others that the thing actually happened, you're effectively dealing with something like a dream. Now, dreams, we all know, are real because we individually have them. But you can't prove the reality of anybody else's dream. You can prove the reality of physiological changes in the brain. But the dream is something which you can't analyze because we don't have any way of translating the dream into a recordable medium. It's a totally subjective experience. And that, to a very large extent, is what the abduction part of an abduction experience is. 
because we don't have anybody, as far as we know, who has actually witnessed an abduction taking place when they were not directly involved, which is a very disturbing piece of information. Why? I mean, we've got people who've witnessed a bank robbery, for instance, in progress, when they weren't directly involved. Um, and we do have some good cases where people who were going through abduction experiences were seen during the time when they believed they were inside the UFO. Where were they? In one case, they were flat out in bed in a kind of trance-like state. In another case, they were unconscious on the floor. And in a very interesting case from Australia, the woman who was believing herself and describing herself to be inside a UFO was sat with two UFO investigators describing the experience to her as though sat there in amazement, realizing that physically she was exactly where she'd been all along, still sat with them in the car. So clearly these, these cases, if nothing else, demonstrate that the abduction experience is not a physically real phenomenon. There may be a physically real cause, and I believe there's good evidence that there is an energy force behind them, but they are not in themselves physically real experiences. I could go on further, but I'm sure I've overrun the time, and um, I think if we don't have any questions at all, I'd better shut up at that point, since it seems an appropriate place to stop. Um, what I hope I've done, rather than solve the mystery for you, because I've not attempted to do that, and I know I, I haven't, is pose questions which possibly you haven't thought of before. And if it makes your mind wander along different pathways in this phenomenon, then I've achieved all and more than I could have expected to achieve. I thank you for uh, greeting me in your country warmly. I've certainly enjoyed myself, and it's been a very learning experience for me. I've, um, I've, I've learned a great deal from the people I've met here, and um, I'll certainly go away with, with things to think over, and I hope you do too. Thank you. Now you'll notice that Jenny talks about the ecological effects of the whole thing. So once an experiencer is abducted, you find out that they're more humanitarian. This has come up quite a bit. As I pointed out in prior podcasts, you see that with plenty of people. Whitley Strieber is a great example. Again, Kim Carlsberg. She actually became vegan for a while after her abduction. The Rua Zimbabwe case, Aerial School, 1994. A lot of the kids were told a humanitarian message. Oftentimes when people are abducted, they see screens showing them visions of devastation or ecological damage or the world literally blowing up in some cases. And I find it fascinating that Jenny Randall's put that together. Jenny Randall's is a very good alien abduction researcher, and I feel like she doesn't get as much credit as she should. She has written a couple alien abduction books, and they're pretty on point. In fact, I would argue that most of the older alien abduction researchers may have been a little more on point than some of the modern ones. Now I say this because nowadays everybody's all about interdimensional hypothesis and things like that. Rather than just looking at the cold hard facts. Now, that talk that I uploaded with John Mack and Bud Hopkins, you notice that John Mack strikes off the question of the work of Jacques Vallée. And what I mean by that is, he kind of puts it back. In other words, and it's the same thing I try to do too, you can find that from one of my older podcasts. The ancient astronaut theory is that of a theory. And why I personally could see it, I push it to the back burner as well. Because there simply is not enough conclusive evidence To elaborate a little further upon that, what I mean by there is not enough evidence is it's too subjective. Where one would see a UFO in a painting, someone else will assume it's a gateway to heaven or something else. Simply put, 
The ancient astronaut theory, while great and a good theory, is not conclusive and is open to subjection. Always, because we do not know what they meant. This is one of the reasons that Ancient Aliens is not liked by a lot of people. Personally, I love the show, or at least I used to. I, I haven't watched it in years, but the older episodes, definitely. I like it. I like the theory. But again, I have to push back against that, because I can't conclusively prove any of that. Simply put, this is what we need to do with the overall phenomenon. We have to keep our perceptions and interpretations out of it, as well as our speculations. I myself have been known to be more of an extraterrestrial hypothesis guy. As of recently, I've decided to just take a step back. While I find conclusive evidence for that, some may find conclusive evidence for a different theory. I no longer think it's necessary to find the origin of the UFO occupants, but rather establish their reality. It doesn't matter if they're extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, ultra-terrestrials, doesn't matter if they're time travelers, ghosts, or gods. What does matter is the effect that it has on us. Hey guys. So, here's the thing. As stated, I bought the Unusual Personal Experiences Survey from 1992 to determine how many people were, may have possibly been abductees. Interestingly, nobody else has conducted a survey like this since, and I kind of see an issue with that. Now, if it were up to me, I would want to do that. And it seems a little weird to me. Now, I'm not going to call a conspiracy on that because I don't believe that. It's just I'm a little confused on why nobody's done it. Now, of course, the material is copyrighted. But asking similar questions is not. But what I'm going to do, and this may not be right away, is I want to actually conduct that survey again. It doesn't have to be through the roper pole because you know something. There's groups like MUFON out there who can go door-to-door and take surveys. Especially because this is UFO and alien abduction related. Now, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. So that would be very helpful. We also live in a different age in which people can take the survey online as well. And I think that's a good idea. I think we're long overdue for that, and personally, I'm interested to see the change from the prior survey. Now, of course, it will be different to a certain degree, but not too different. And the good thing is, you won't even have to spend any money on it. So for me personally, I'm going to try to rope some people together. If you or your friends are in Move On and you want to help me out with this, I think it's a good idea. And I'm going to try to conduct it. With the help of researchers and those field investigators, I think we can make it happen. I would be very interested to know how the trends have changed, if at all. Has the abductee population grown or decreased? That's one of the big ones I want to find out. Now, obviously, before I do this, I'll make an announcement, and, you know, I want to try to get everybody together on it. This is not a one-man job. Now, I will say right now, 
I have my issues with MUFON. There is a reason I'm not a MUFON investigator. And in fact, we'll never become one. But it doesn't mean we can't work together. So I urge you to please let your friends know that this is coming up. Thank you. If you're an abductee and you need somebody to talk to, feel free to message me at theufosyahoo.com and I will talk to you. Or I will put you in contact with somebody who can help you. It doesn't have to be shared on my podcast. I'm just looking to help people with the contact experience because I know it's not always the greatest. So if you need that help, please reach out to me. I'm here to help you. That's the whole point of these podcasts. You can reach out to people like me, Preston Dennett, Debbie Cobble, and many others. If you're needing help, please reach out. You will not be ridiculed by us. And I want to thank you. Now with that, I'm going to end it here. I want to thank you guys again for listening. I want to thank the ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. On my website, I just put a new blog up there. If anybody wants to get a hold of me to appear on the podcast, if you just want to share your experience with me, or if you want to talk to me about being in the book, you might be able to discuss that. Just hit me up at theufos at yahoo.com. Hit me up on my Facebook or abductionenigma.webador.com. Now, next time, we're going to have Aerial School. Drew was Zimbabwe case in 1994. After that, I want to handle Kelly Hopkinsville case. After that, we're probably going to go past Google and revisit some of these older cases. I think they're important to get that out of the way and deal with it. They should be established and they are great experiences. With that guys, I'm going to let you go. Alright, keep kicking it. <laughs>